Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, David, and I've got my good buddy from New York on the other line, Ian Rice. Ian, how are you doing? Very well, sir. How are you? I am well. I am well. Normally, we sit here and we chit-chat for a little bit, but we're not going to do that this week because we uh, have a guest that I have had penciled down as somebody I would like to talk to ever since we started the podcast, and I didn't really know how to approach it and see if it would ever happen, but it kind of happened on Instagram the other night, so... um, we are really, really honored that Lala Slopeman decided to come on here and talk with us. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, one of the first things we've been asking people lately is now that the world is opening back up, how was your uh, quarantine time? Mm. It, it was extremely difficult, but it was also the most it put a big spotlight. I mean, I've already, I was already into about four or five years of really dealing with some um, childhood trauma and he, trying to heal. And, and then that happened. And I went through a breakup during that. My daughter's fourth grade teacher died of COVID. So there was just like a, a, a and massive amounts of like spotlights being sh- shown on, on, all the things that still need healing, they're flaring up, you know, and that, <clears throat> so I, it was horrible. I mean, I know a lot of people that lost fit friends and family. I, I, we lost Mr. Glover and it was kind of amazing. And, you know, I, I love staying home. Give <laughs> me an opportunity to stay home and I'm psyched. I know, I know for a lot of people, it was a time to maybe reprioritize their life mm. and, uh, and realize, Hey, there were things that I were doing. Maybe I don't need to do that anymore and concentrate more. Right. Right. Reframe all of it. How was it for you guys? I'm a pharmacist and all of my patients are in nursing homes. So really? nothing, it just got weird <laughs> for me, but I was very lucky. I was one of the, I mean, I was one of the first people in the world to get the vaccine. Luckily, I got to not worry too much about that pretty quick after that. But no, it was uh, it's still crazy, <laughs> to be honest with you. But yeah. things are, are dying down a little bit. Ian, how did you handle it? Oh, you know, it was uh, I'm, I'm much like you, Lola. I like to stay home. So it really didn't affect me in that regard. But, you know, I don't think things will ever be the same, quite the same again. It really changed people's lives in a, mm. in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. All right. So one of the things that uh, makes you a a very interesting guest, other than your connection to the Black Crows, is you have an interesting, uh, interesting family. For those that don't know, Frank Zappa was your uncle. Obviously, he was a pioneer in music and and really influenced so many people and was quirky and weird and in all the good ways. And, and, you know, just kind of really a legend growing up around all of that. Did that at a very early age give you a nice appreciation for music? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, Frank, growing up with Frank gave me an appreciation for sort of thinking outside the box and not going along with everything conventional. But there wasn't a lot of music being played there except Frank's music. You know, that that, that <laughs> he, he had some classical music that he loved. And, and I was really surprised to find out he had done a cover of Whipping Post which really? is amazing if you ever get a chance to look that up. But, you know, he didn't play a lot of music. You, it, he, he was nocturnal, so the floor was, and the studio was downstairs, so the floor was vibrating with Joe's Garage or um, uh, Chic Your Booty, because this was like 1978 when I was living there, but I moved back in a few times. I lived there until I was 19. And I moved back in when I was uh, 40 as well. <laughs> When I was pregnant, but uh, my most of my my exposure exposure to music actually came from my mom, and she went out with two of Frank's 
uh, horn players at two different two different times, like Gary Barone and Jock Ellis was a trombone player. They both played in Frank's band. My mom is on the cover of Live at the Roxy or wait, Roxy and Elsewhere, mm-hmm. wearing a white lace dress. And uh, Richard Manuel mm-hmm. babysat me when I was a kid because of my mom. <laughs> Uh, Robbie Krieger used to babysit me too. My mom would say, Oh, we're got, we got to go drop this. My mom made tie dye dresses hand. She hand dyed one of a kind. This one on the cover of time magazine, Linda Ronstadt's wearing it. You know, we got to go drop this dress off at A&M and it would be like Chris Christopherson was in there rehearsing. There's just, or, or we, we'd have to go to Dr. Frank's house who lived in Malibu and he was a doctor um, and had a medicine bag with, you know, his own shots that apparently uh, all these people needed, including my mother. And somebody incredible taught me how to play piano that night. Eric Clapton. Eric That's Clapton it. sat down and was like, let me show you how to ABC. Like, yeah. I, am so, I am so jealous of your childhood right now. <laughs> Mine was boring compared to that. That's a unique story because Eric Clapton told you how to play piano, not even guitar, piano. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you remember uh, when you were around the crows. Their front of house sound guy, Jeff Dunn, was Donald oh, Duck Dunn's son. We had him on here, and he was like, "Yeah, at seventeen, I went on tour with Eric Clapton with my dad, and Eric Clapton gave me a tag watch." And I was just like, hey, "You guys are living in an alternate universe." <laughs> so, I, like you said, you were around all these people. Did you? realize how important your uncle was and, and realize how important in music these your babysitters were you got the greatest babysitter club of all time I, I, know, I, I it wasn't until I was older I mean I knew who Robbie Krieger was when I was when I was at his house and he had a son uh, has a son that I would hang out with and I knew that but I didn't know who Richard Manuel was. I didn't know who Eric Clapton was. I did know who Chris Christopherson was because the Star is Born was my all-time favorite movie, even when mm. I was tiny. And um, I knew I knew that my uncle was, was very important and that he, not, he wasn't top, you know, on the radio. He wasn't, uh, he was more of sort of like prankster musician, but very respected and very interesting and people people loved him he had a, a a lot of fans that would get very very excited about him and everybody thought he was dropping acid and doing all kinds of nutty stuff but he he wasn't yeah the the, uh, the remarkable thing about frank zappa was he was so innovative and yet he was he's one of the few people that was able to interject humor into his music without it being silly right yeah. right so it, yeah, it, it wasn't silly, but you're right. It was incredible. Yeah. So did you continue to learn to play the piano after Eric Clapton taught you? I did. I did. I, I, <laughs> my daughter's over there making fun of me. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I started, I, I forget who taught me, but somebody taught me how to play the exorcist theme. And then of course, when I was, and I, I could play by ear and all my mom's musician friends would always talk about how, I could pick things up by ear. And eventually I took classical piano when I was a teenager living at Frankie Gales. And I can't remember how to play anything. I saw your cousin Dweezil a couple years ago with the Experience Hendrix project. Oh yeah. How was it? He just tore it up. I was, yeah. I was, I was front row. I was so impressed. <laughs> um, he was, he was, he was really, really good. So you go on from your, your, famous babysitter club and, and you wind up in in several movies at a time I was born in 1976 and so I, I guess for people like me and you and Ian kind of like the second golden age of Hollywood uh, because you had all of these great 80s teen movies you know and I still I'll turn them on and the nostalgia hits me how did you how did you get into acting well I I wanted to be my my moon my cousin moon was my like idol. Even when I was around four or five, I started to just want to be just like her. She was so creative and ornate and dressed different and um, the such a great sense of humor. And when she started doing that whole Valley Girl thing, I think I might have been around 11 or 12. But even around seven, six or seven, 
I saw the, this movie called The Turning Point with um, Shirley MacLaine. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I want to do that. And then I got run over by a car when I was going to high school in Santa Barbara. Jeez. And my, my, I was 15. My Aunt Gail called and she said, and I had just had a surf accident like six weeks prior. And she said, um, if I don't get you out of there and bring you here, you're, a plane's going to crash on on you. <laughs> so come come live with us. And she also didn't trust the doctors in Santa Barbara to fix my ankle. So she had me brought down to uh, Cedar Sinai, and and then I moved in with them. And she helped me helped me get an agent. And that's how it that's how it started. Well, you were in one of the most well known uh, films of the of the late eighties. That was a Dream a Little Dream with. Uh, what they affectionately term the two Corys there. I mean, how was, <laughs> how was it, uh, how was it being a part of something that's, that's kind of lived on with, with such a reputation? You know, we, uh, what I love about dream a little dream and, and the two Corys, I, I mean, pump up the volume I feel is, is more of a, like a, people love that movie more. I don't know yeah. a lot of people that like dream a little dream, except for Corey, Corey Haim fans. <laughs> I, and I, and I get hit up by them all the time on, on, um, on Instagram. I, or they tag me in something and they all have questions about Corey and they're so sweet that he still has such a huge fan base. So I just like send them all the photographs I have so they can, they make these edits and, and then they, tag me in them and they all ask questions about them. I try to answer as many of them as I can, but that, that other than that, like, I mean, I, I had a blast doing that movie and I made some really good friends, but I never really liked the movie all that much. I hate to say, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't like myself in it either. What was it like being in that movie with both of them? Because if you're a little bit younger than us, you don't realize that was like the age of the, the male teen star you had like kurt cameron you had the two Corys, you had all of those people in like they were all i remember in junior high school all the girls had these magazines and they oh, all yeah. had them on the front <laughs> what was it like kind of being plugged into that because it was it was kind of like the beatles of boy bands at that time what was it like being around all of that was it as crazy as it looked it was there was i mean there were screaming girls all over the place chasing us and and waiting outside and those magazines were bananas. There was like 14 of them mm. that, and they were plastered all over them. And, and they did those one uh, 900 numbers. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. yes. They, they'd leave a daily recording and Alyssa Milano had like that teen, teen steam. Gosh, she made a workout video. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. It was in the recesses of my mind, but yes. Uh, that's <laughs> Ian recalled that real quick. <laughs> Well, and, and that was an interesting time in Hollywood too. You had like Johnny Depp and, and that whole crew coming. It was kind of a, kind of a wild time. And, you know, we all heard stories of the Viper room and you had the sunset strip and what a time to be there. I mean, yeah. I, I know there was some ugliness that went on, you know, there for a lot of people, but was it as wild as it, as it looked for those of us from the outside? I mean, with the, the, all that, the eighties, we were all under age, even though Corey, both Corey's did get themselves into a little trouble. And it took me years before I did got into my own trouble, but there was this place called Alfie soda pop club. And it was, it was an underage nightclub for actors and actresses. And it was sponsored by Randy Miller. I think the guy who owned New York seltzer and it was like every Friday and Saturday night at the Hollywood Roosevelt. And all of us were there and we were all 16 or 17 at the Viper room. I think the, the whole Johnny Depp, I mean, Johnny Depp show was on. That was pretty. Was that 21 I, jump street? Yeah. 21 jump street. I don't remember it getting too nuts. Into, I guess I was about 18, 19. Yeah. I started, I had, well, I had my 18th slash 21st birthday party at the Formosa cafe. And that's when it started. I started to notice it was getting a little nuts, probably because I was getting a little older and, and exposed to like a lot of people who were older and already well accomplished in their, in their drinking careers. 
<laughs> I mean, it seems like that atmosphere could really go sideways on you quickly. Mm. The the Corys especially uh, had had a really difficult time with with that. I've always thought like you think about Elvis and and what he went through, and obviously there was the fame and the money, but he couldn't get up and go to the gas station like me. You know, yeah. he's kind yeah. of a kind of a prisoner uh, essentially, and uh, I assume for people like that, especially at the height of their stardom, that I'm sure they feel like they lost a lot of their freedom. Right. So what kind of music were you listening to in, in 1990? 1990, I was, well, I'd just come out of my white snake phase. <laughs> at Cinderella, oh. uh, GNR, um, Enough's Enough, Rough Cut. You're going deep here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was just breaking out of that. But I also love Tears for Fears, Depeche Mode. You know, I was breaking out of that because I had heard The Far Side and Chronic came out. And I was listening to, well, I was hanging out with Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys and he exposed me to all this uh, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, like the Tribe Called Qu- I mean, I just loved rap music so, so much. So that's, that's in 1990, I was definitely listening to Dre, Dr. Dre's records and The Far Side. So that's the year that the Black Crow Shake Your Moneymaker came out. Did yes. you did you listen to them then or were you kind of more into the hip hop? I didn't listen to them. And I it's a funny story because I had some friends. Lara Flynn Boyle was an actress friend of mine, and she had this friend named Suzette. And I had just broken up with my my boyfriend, uh, C. Thomas Howell. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to get back together and he left a bag on my doorstep at my apartment building and inside was a cassette of shake your money maker with a little ribbon and a note around it and it said listen to this song she talks to angels it reminds me of you and that was my also i went to the top of the capitol building because rick rubin was throwing a party for the bc boys because paul's boutique would just just come out and he only invited one other band and it was the Black Crows. And they were in town like rehearsing to make Shake Your Money Maker. And they were all just, the, you know, little black leather jackets and thick creepers and skinny stovepipe jeans, like totally different vibe. And, and I just remember they were looking at, at us like we were disgusting. And we were looking at them like they were disgusting. <laughs> well, Rich would have probably been first. like, Rich probably would have been like 18 years old at the time. Oh, had to, had to be. Yeah. He was like the bass player of free. How old was that guy? 17. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Little baby. Same age. Probably I was the same age, 18 and 19. Now, how is it that you finally crossed paths with Chris Robinson? So I, I went down a, a rabbit hole last night, a black crows rabbit hole. So I would be prepared because I, I haven't listened to a lot of their musics for a long time. I, I was, um, I, I mean, I knew the first two records I we met in the middle of the highest. No, that I, I pulled out my itineraries for you guys. Oh, cool. <laughs> Very cool. I, I'm trying, I think uh, High as the Moon would have been way later. Anyways, uh, Chris and I met around 92, 93. Yeah. We met right after the spring break festival. They did Monsters of Rock or something. They did mm. four songs. Mm-hmm. My uh, There was a, a woman named Juliana Roberts, and she represented video directors. And she worked at this place over on in, in Hollywood that my my best friend at the time, Alexis, worked there too, answering phones or something. Alexis was in love with Chris. <laughs> and she kept trying to get me to listen to them. And, and then she found out that Juliana was friends with Chris and that they were coming into town. Uh, they were on tour, but they were going to come into town for a week. And she begged me, you know, come with me come with me. We're going to meet them at the King King. The King King was like this, this little venue on La Brea and sixth, which was literally two blocks from my apartment that used to play this live band called the red devils used to play there every weekend. And it's just like a little teeny tiny venue with a small stage. And so we went out 
And Chris walked in, he saw me across the room and he said, that's the woman I'm going to marry. And then like the next week we became heavily enmeshed. Um, and, and Chris called, called my friend Alexis and she, I was like, I can't go out with him. I can't, I can't go out with a musician. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> and, and she sent me the, the spring break tape on VHS, those four songs, which are amazing, amazing. The remedy part where he just starts ad-libbing. I need a hummingbird to hum me. Yeah. I mean, I just was like, all right, fine. I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'll definitely go out with him. But he called, he called Alexis because he didn't, I don't think I gave him my number. Uh, you know, he just bought in a house in, in Atlanta in Buckhead. And he said to, Ale- he said to Alexis, you got to help me because I need to f- sell my house in Atlanta and, and find a house in Los Angeles worthy of Lala. <laughs> I was sold when she called me and told me that I was like, okay, where, where do I sign? <laughs> Most romantic person, not to mention he was a Sagittarius, like my uncle Frank, he had all the creative genius, like my uncle Frank, and he looked kind of like him and that, that, that entire, the vibe around that band was so it matched so much the, the, the vibration matched so much with my childhood. So it was a perfect fit for me, you know, and, and Chris was literally, he was, he, he, he's the funniest, you know, there's like three people in my life that are the funniest people I've ever, ever met. And Chris is probably number one. And my cousin moon and my cousin Amit would be two and three, but literally he's the funniest person. He, he's so creative so talented so romantic so like such a beautiful letter writer and yeah it was it was uh i hadn't i didn't have a chance in hell (laughs) (laughs) was he was he aware of your musical pedigree when he met you because but from what everybody that we talked to and we've had pretty much everybody in their orbit just about on here we know he's a big music geek like the rest of us. Oh my God. And, and, and he can go deep. I mean, some of the stuff he listens to, I have to like go and Google who are these people. Yeah. What, what, what was his feelings of knowing that, you know, what was his thoughts when he found out you were Frank Zappa's niece? And obviously not only his niece, very close to him and you lived with him. Well, I used that as sort of like a, we went on a date to a bar, a bar called Smalls. And I was like, I want you to meet my family. <laughs> and he's like, okay, who's your family? What's, what, what, what about your family? I said, well, my uncle's a musician and I want you to meet him. He's like, okay, who's your uncle? I was like, Frank Zappa. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll meet your family. And I, you know, I was really excited for them to, to meet. And when we eventually went over there, <laughs> like my aunt Gail got into a, a political fight with Chris instantly (laughs) and then chris eventually went downstairs uh we both went downstairs to the studio to see frank and they and then i left to leave chris alone with frank and it was probably about 20 minutes and then frank and chris came back up and then we left and chris was not impressed he was like i don't know people use sync levers and it's kind of like rapping like there's no art to it like, all right, maybe you haven't listened to any Zappa records. You looked at every other fucking record on the planet. <laughs> right. Haven't listened to Frank Zappa. But my family was very supportive and loved, loved although my Aunt Gail said, be careful when you start to wear each other's clothes because suddenly you'll find out that groupies are wearing your personal items that, that Chris had on. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> thanks, thanks. That feels good. Well, it seems when when you met Chris, that was a time that the Black Crows had kind of really skyrocketed to fame and they were really experiencing a peak. But it also seemed like there was a, a duality at the time because they were always a band that was looking to progress to the next thing and kind of expand what they were doing. And I, I, it just seems like a very interesting time to have been 
present with the band it kind of what was it like in in those days uh you know watching them work and 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 the fame that was rapidly surrounding them it was it was kismet it was magical it was the most incredible experience other than having this beautiful human being that i get to um try to steer in the right direction it was the best thing i've ever gone through the best time of my life the funniest the most beautiful, the most heart-wrenching, the most loving. I mean, my favorite thing about them as a band was that they didn't like outsiders around. So that always felt like a security blanket. And, and Chris wanted me with, we were, we were inseparable. We shared everything. We did everything together. We were, I mean, tied at the hip pretty much. I, I, I stopped going on auditions. I stopped acting completely and just was on tour with him. And, uh, it, it was, it was like, you know, it was, I, I had a huge ego about it. Cause I felt like I'm so lucky because they're so particular about who they do let in. And I thought, wow, I must be really special if, if Chris is letting me in, you know, and, and, and I always felt safe, like I was saying, because they didn't, have a, a lot of people that they let in, especially fans. And uh, later on during festivals and stuff like Chris and Chris started to go down more of that Grateful Dead sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. He got more friendly with inviting fans around, but whichever tour it was that they were still doing before they made, before they made uh, Amorica and when we met, they were, they still had another year and a half leg, I think. And then Chris made a Chris made a, a, his own record when that tour ended. Before they made Amorica, Chris made a record in, at Conway about just, just songs about me. He only did four songs, and it was called Sweet Pickle Salad. Mm. And I don't yeah. know, we know did. it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, uh, there was a song called "I Will Clothe and Feed You." Mm-hmm. And I don't think he realized that I would take that literally and like clothe myself with the most expensive clothing I could find. Credit <laughs> <laughs> <a> card. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it literally was, it, it was like, honestly, because the star is born was my favorite movie as a little girl. I felt like I was living that movie, you know, it, it was incredible. It was so magical. And then to meet the people that I got to meet that they, they, they were on tour with or just to see how incredibly creative Chris and Rich and all of them were and the, the incredible music. I mean, I became such a huge Black Crows fan. I still think they're amazing. And I was listening to them last night, that tall record. I've got to have a copy of it somewhere before it became something else, like the very first edition of it. That record is, I, I haven't heard it in 20 something years. And as I was going down my rabbit hole last night, I saw some people posting about that. And I was like, oh my God, that right, that, that record never got released. And I put it on, I was sobbing because it's, it really, it really encompasses like our, the end of our marriage. There's a song on there that Tornado, he wrote, he wrote that song for, I don't know if you guys know this, he wrote that song for Johnny Cash. And then what's his name? Trent Reznor wrote that Hurt song for Johnny mm-hmm. Cash. And Chris was like fucking angry about it. Like, I'm not <laughs> song then if he's going to take a Reznor song. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't aware he wrote that for Johnny Cash. Well, that is, that's yeah. definitely, an, that's definitely news there. Getting back to like being welcomed into the fold, because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Well, I, Chris welcomed me. (laughs) (laughs) Was it, was it, was it slow, a slow go with everybody else? I mean, were they kind of cautious? Like, here's this person that's just come into our kind of tight circle. The only people that were cautious were Rich and Emma and, and Steve, Steve was cautious too. Mark and I were like, I felt Mark and I, we we were just like the it, it, it I, the best way to describe us would probably be like two like 
Beavis and Butthead. And I know, <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, but that's what my friendship with Mark felt like. Like we were fucking Beavis. And, yeah. Like we, we just laughed at the silliest stuff all the time. And my, and, um, and Johnny was so sweet. And uh, Eddie, Eddie and I were just, we just got, got along fantastically from the very beginning. He was so loving and welcoming. Just, it was rich, rich and Steve were cautious and, and rich came around. It would come, it would go in and out, you know, depending on how, how the brothers were doing. <laughs> but there were, there were times I felt very loved and accepted by rich and Emma. And I, 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 sometimes I, I reach out Emma and I, you know, send her photos that I come across and, um, I, I love all of them deeply, you know, but, but yeah, I was not, it was not open. The, the front of the bus, it depend it depended on which bus they had. If there was a Prevost or a Silver Eagle, but one lounge would be Chris's one lounge would be Rich's. And there's like, no crossing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're on board during the most creative and, and probably productive four or five years in the band's history. And you talked about Chris being creative. What was it like? You're just sitting around the house and you watch these songs evolve from nothing that eventually get played on the radio and, and go all over the world. Was that an interesting thing to see? It was amazing. It was amazing to see. I I found a bunch of stuff like that Chris had written because I, like I said, we shared everything. We had our journals, our own separate journals, but occasionally like he would pick one, one of mine up and just write a bunch of shit in it. <laughs> or I had this book, fucker. I had this book called All About Me. It was like a kid's book and you're supposed to fill it out. Like my favorite color is this, this, and, this. and Chris filled it out with a bunch of <laughs> jokey mean stuff i didn't know that he did that until about a year ago when i came across it um, it was amazing i mean he chris was i was i was literally if if you could possibly be obsessed with your husband your your partner i i idolized him because he was so creative. He was so funny. He could do the most spot on impressions of anybody and do any dialect to a T. He had such good taste with music, with art, with photography, with books, with comedy. I mean, you, like he just, he was like my professor. And I just was like, anything he did was, was like liquid platinum to me. You know what I mean? Like I, and to watch him, you know, we'd wake up around 11 or 12, maybe take a Heineken or a red stripe into the steam room, do take a little steam shower with our beers <laughs> and then go downstairs. He'd put on the loudest, you know, fucking Nick Drake or, or David Crosby. If I could only remember my name, that record was like constantly on in the morning or sometimes he would be surprising and he'd put on like blur i was really surprised yeah. sometimes he would throw me like I, i'd be like what the hell is <laughs> we'd go into tower records and he'd get a, a basket and it would be piling over we had over four thousand cds in in our living room before we met he had to make these two giant bookcases from scratch he had somebody build them four cds because there there was so many of them and then i paid my friend jody it took her probably four or five days to alphabetize them for him. <laughs> she just sat in our living room for days on end, like hours, just like, oh my God. And then, you know, he had, like, he collected bootlegs. He collected everything. He had social distortion records. He had uh, jazz records. I mean, everything, you know, he really does know. I learned so much about music from him, but to to see him sit down, you know, journal a little bit. He he did a lot of journaling on um on tour, like in hotel rooms. I feel like he he would write more than, but then also off off tour too. Like off tour was really hard for him because he was used to being on the stage in in sound check at 4:30. You know, so his body was so used to that that he would get really anxious around 4:30 being home and then by six or seven when it's almost time 
you know, like he, he had to put on his war records or, or his sly and the family stone at full blast. Like it's almost time to go on. <laughs> there's nowhere to go. It was our living room. And we watched a shitload of TV. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it seems being with the, the, the person who primarily is responsible for the lyrics that you might have been the subject matter for a few of those songs. Is there any in particular that uh, come to mind? Well, uh, she gives good sunflower um, and Pete Angelus. We had dinner at the great Greek one night and he said, I just want to thank you for having Chris write such a beautiful song. Um, and that's funny too, that night because Chris had gone like 48 hours without having any liquor. And he, Pete thanked me for that too. Like <laughs> you're such a good, you're, you're, you're a good influence. It's nice to see, which reminded me, I found this book today. It's kind of egotistical to read this, but Chris found this in a hotel room. Somebody came to interview him for Three Snakes and One Charm, and they left all their questions on it. Like Black Crows, Three Snakes, okay, Three Snakes, One Charm, any parallel to this? Like all these questions is like, Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't, wasn't he a king? How does he, tra-? you know, all these crazy questions, page after page, 14, 15. And the last question, question 28, it sounds like reading the lyrics to the record that you're happy and possibly in love. And, and he left, the, 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 the guy left this in the hotel and then Chris saw that. He was like, here, honey, you get to keep that. That's for you. <laughs> That's cool. And I found it in storage a year ago. <laughs> some, some of that, you know, some, some of those songs that you're talking about were really personal and really deep. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of make you feel kind of vulnerable? that the world is, is knowing, you know, kind of innermost thoughts between two people. I I'm, I'm, uh, I have such a yin yang self-worth, low self-worth thing going on. Like I want everybody to see me and then I don't want anybody to look at me, but if you're not looking at me, you better turn around and see me. (laughs) (laughs) And so all the good songs about me, like, I wanted everybody to know and hear them. And there's a lot. Those those three or four records have a lot of songs about it, about not me, but about us and our relationship. And and there was even songs that I feel like were a a warning and a message that I was too inebriated and too. I couldn't, I couldn't hear it and see it for what it really was. And, but, but um, downtown money waster, he made it very clear that that song was about me. When we, <laughs> when we broke up one time, like in 94, we broke up for a few months uh, within a year and a half or so of being together. And it was the worst four months of both of our lives. And we ended up getting back together and then never wanted to break up again. But um he wrote that song during that time and yeah i didn't <laughs> is, want i didn't want people to know that song was about me was uh was better when was better when you're not alone about you i i well i hate to say that it is or i think i i think so I, i'm pretty sure i i know title song is i know curse diamond and just descending have some so chris writes uh, sometimes either the whole song is about a situation and then sometimes like there's a paragraph that's about a whole other topic, you know, let me ask you this. What did you think the first time you heard the final descending with Ed's piano at the end? <laughs> it's one of the best pieces of music of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's, why time? Yeah. <laughs> I can't even, I can't, <laughs> I can't even take it. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, Let's talk about some of the, some of the happier stuff during that time. They were kind of blazing their own path. They, uh, you know, were part Grateful Dead, part the Rolling Stones, part <laughs> the Almond Brothers, and kind of morphed into a, a band. Really, that don't, that don't did, forget Bad Company. You're leaving bad, Paul Rogers out of there. Yes, yes. <laughs> Bad Company. They were they were kind of becoming their own animal. And what was it like seeing that? Because they did not play by the same rules that every other band did. You know, they never played the same set list twice. They played these cool covers. Like we talk, I got into Little Feet because of them because they played Willin. You know, um, they played Neil Young, you know, big time. They played that right after the record came out. 
was that was that just a fun yeah. time to see that? Because I just feel like they were just playing with house money. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I remember on da- on Letterman they played uh, "Feeling All Right," and yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, they they would do Bob Marley. I mean, they just yeah, it was it was it was amazing. It was they did they there you know I I I hung out with a couple bands since then, and nobody has been as cool. And had such well. First of all, you've got Chris Robinson who can outsmart, outwit, outfight anybody verbally, <laughs> and he'd probably want me to say physically too. But I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, but he's got Rich backing him up too, though. So you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although Rich was so quiet, but he would. He if Chris was really, you know, going down into that area. I mean, Chris would. I would just, I'd literally be on the floor in stitches laughing my ass off at some of the stuff he would say to people. He could cut you deep <laughs> and it was hysterical. You know what I mean? Like it, it was hysterical and they just had a vibe, you know, we, when they would do um, like pink pop or any of those European festivals, uh, Glastonbury and all the bands are have the same sort of backstage area. The Black Crows had that fucking tent with the massive high as the moon Black Crow flag. That guy, mm-hmm. the big flag and the loudest sound system, the most weed. I mean, <laughs> and nobody was allowed to come in there. <laughs> I haven't been around that vibe since it, it was it was amazing. It really was like the most magical time in my life. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, you were also uh, present at the time where the band kind of transitioned from what they were doing with you know, Three Snakes and the band sessions and being on the further tour to the kind of almost seemingly a 180 to the by your side period. And I was just wondering what it was like and what kind of motivated that 180 for them. Yeah, by the time by your side was recorded and they did take some of the so- songs from that that record Mm. that hasn't ever been released. Chris and I had broken up by then we were separated, Mm. but I, there was a definite change around when we started going to a lot of dead shows, you know, Chris started wearing a lot more tie dyes and, and grateful dead shirts and listening to the dead and hang. We started going to a large and, and then, even Steve started wearing shorts <laughs> stage. I was like, what, what's happening? I can't, because, you know, they had, they always had a thing. Like it, they always had a, a judgment about something that they would never do. Like I'll, I'll never wear shorts on stage. And then Chris did that. <laughs> and they, Yeah. And Steve and, or, or I'll never do any advertising or I'll never have a, my wife will never be my manager. All that stuff sort of, has happened, but they did have a lot of rules back then. And I, I think, I mean, Chris and Rich were fighting a lot. There was a, the, there was a lot going on and, and I didn't know a lot about it, about what was actually really going on after three snakes with, with Johnny, there was a lot of, of band issues. There was a lot of Pete calls and trying to get Chris and, and, and Rich on the phone and, Chris just sort of veered into this whole other, it it became all about the Grateful Dead. Like that's all that he would play in the house. And he started collecting tapes and we started having a whole new group of friends that we met at dead shows, Amy Finkel being one of them. And I think that Chris fought so hard to sort of change it towards that. And there was some resistance, you know, but that's my perception. And my perception is pretty foggy because by that point I was taking a lot of pills and um, drinking a lot. But my perception was that Chris had to like really fight them to sort of go down more of a, you know, jammy hippie vibe. I mean, not, not, not hippie vibes. They're, they're already there, but just sort of like change it up a little bit that, Mm. Rich did not like the Grateful Dead. No, no. <laughs> so we've heard. <laughs> See, I think they appealed to such a wide audience that they could have done both. 
I mean, when they first came out, I, I joked with people, you, you could go to a show and somebody would be wearing a Metallica shirt and the person next to you would be wearing, you know, a Cure shirt. They, they had a wide appeal. And I think they could have pulled yeah, it off. I saw you in a Cure shirt on your Insta page. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love the Cure. Absolutely love the Cure. But I think they could have pulled both of it off. They could have they could have just mixed it up and, and stayed that way. Were you around the house? They call it Chateau de Crow when um, Three Snakes was being recorded because that album's a real special one for me and Ian. It's one of our favorites. And I always tell people, I think it's the best written album that they've ever done. The lyrics, I think, are the best on that. It's the most unique album in the catalog. I I, I had a Chateau de Crows t-shirt and I got rid of it. I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, it was awesome. This They rented this beautiful house uh, in the winter in Atlanta. You, you guys know Womb of the Free? Yeah. <laughs> she has some great footage from from the those those days of us playing in the snow and uh was that jack was that jack Puig? yeah the, mm-hmm. that record yeah and and our friend keith van horn from the chicago bears he came and visited for a yeah. little while and um that's when uh parliament funkadel who came uh some of the mudbone is yeah. that yeah, he's on the record, right? There's yeah. a few of those guys that that was a gnarly couple of nights. <laughs> and it was also it was also the the thing with Jeff Season and and the guy who tried to sue them. Yeah, they were on court. Was that that was on like court TV? Yep, yep. And and Rich, I remember Chris. Chris loved it so much. Rich went and bought an Armani suit for every single day of court appearance and rented like a Rolls Royce or some other sort of high-end car to show up in. And, and, <laughs> and that's, and Chris was like, that's, that's why I love my brother. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're going to come after us, this is, this is what we got, you know, like don't fuck with us. <laughs> but that, it was a heavy time. It was, it was, I was going, starting to drift into a, a whole other opiate world that was and and our friend uh yuri who yuri was was uh working with us then my my brother charlie roberts is a tattoo artist and yuri is charlie's best friend and he had recommended that we we try using him as chris's assistant and and he worked out great but yuri yuri and i and and uh ed were getting into some trouble and you know i i think about rich played bass on that that record and and that that was heavy too to have johnny show up all the time and and with a smile on his face and be there when he's not playing his instrument on on in his band's record that was heavy it was a heavy record mm. but yeah it's beautiful it's a beautiful record i love that record too a uh, a good friend of ours bought that bass yeah he's he's, uh it's a band called the amorkins they're a tribute band out of boston and he uh yeah and so you know obviously you and chris parted ways not not long after that did you take a break from listening to the black crows after that or did you still listen to their music i didn't take a break we got separated in 98 and i couldn't take a break Cause I was trying so desperately to hang on to it. I didn't want to get separated. I didn't, didn't want to break up my, my drug addiction had gotten too big of a deal for Chris to deal with. Everybody knew it. I was hiding it the best I could, but you could, I couldn't hide it at that point. Um, I was falling asleep at dinner tables and it was bad. So I couldn't stop listening to it because there was something about that, and that's when it dawned on me that that record that has never been released, that's that's when I finally realized, like I, I would get a couple months of sobriety and I kept on relapsing and I'd get a little more, a couple more months and I'd relapse again because my heart was so broken. But listening to the that record, I realized like there's so many, so many messages and cues that I didn't, I couldn't see and I didn't pick up on. And I, you know, I carried the, blame of that marriage falling apart for decades and then eventually you know 
I stopped listening. When when Lula, a couple years ago, Lula was asking me about my first, my my only marriage, and I played her some songs, and and I since then have gotten into like listening to you know nonfiction is one of my all time favorite, and Wiser Time. I mean, if if I if I want to get into a mood, I put on Wiser Time. It had such a good Curse Diamond. I mean, those songs. And when when they would open with No Speak, No Slave, even that song, the way they opened that tour when they had the 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 lights going across the auditorium, like you were at a, a, a backyard mm. and had the, the white lights, curtains that you could see through and they'd all walk on and the, the Moroccan music was so fucking loud. And then the curtains would split open and Chris would fucking tornado around the stage. <laughs> that was like such a, I, 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 I love to put that song on because it puts me right back in that. I, I do not think that when they opened highs, the moon tour with no speak, no slave. I don't think there's a band on the planet that could touch them then. Ugh. And that's rock and roll. If somebody goes, Hey, what's rock and roll. It's that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It, it was incredible. It, it was amazing. And, 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 uh, when Jeffrey Gorman, I have to mention Jeffrey Gorman, Steve's cousin. I mean, he would do, he wore the pig, uh, <laughs> he wore the red devil. He wore the crow. Right. He was on tour with us for a long time and he was like my my other like go to best pal on on tour. He's another very funny person. I mean, if you're related to Steve Gorman, you have to have, I I should hope you have a pretty keen sense of humor. <laughs> He's one of the great storytellers of all time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Steve Steve and Chris are phenomenal storytellers. Yeah. Steve was our first member of the band that we had on here. So he'll always have like a little, little special place in, in our heart. All right. So as we kind of get toward the end of this, we like to do a thing where we ask our guests five questions, kind of rapid fire. First thing that comes okay. to your mind. Okay. What's your favorite Black Crow song? Just one. Your favorite one. <laughs> Wiser time. What was your favorite tour to be witness to and a part of? It has to be High as the Moon. What is something about Chris that would shock us? That's funny. Like, does he watch teen rom-coms or something like that? <laughs> well, we probably watched Tommy boy about 600 times. <laughs> and we watched, um, uh, dazed and confused about 200 times. I can see that. That makes me happy. <laughs> we watched Mar Martin Lawrence. It's comedy special. Almost every night we, what would be, you would be surprised. Okay. Aside from making his, his Hebrew national only hot dogs in Heineken, he boils them in Heineken. Aside from that, he makes a fucking kick-ass salami sandwich with rye bread, Swiss cheese, mustard, and thin slices of long, long thin slices of pickle. It's wow. fucking delicious. <laughs> Almost like his take on a Reuben. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a Robinson. <laughs> Actually, this is something we, we try to ask anybody we know has been around Ed Harsh. What's, what's a, what's a good Ed Harsh story? You remember something that was, you find particularly poignant or memorable or touching. He, well, I do remember that he was such a loner, you know, on tour but he was, he always had a smile on his face. And I do remember that he talked about his mom very favorably and every city we were in, like at the crack of dawn, he was out of the hotel and walking. And now I realize now what he was doing. He was trying to find the seediest part of town, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I know that he was friends with uh, Mitch Hedberg, and I thought that was fascinating because I thought Mitch Hedberg was hilarious. He is one of the most underappreciated comics uh, of the yeah. last 25 years. Yeah. We, I, we could all, always couldn't believe why he was living in the like darkest part of, of Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else had their nice, pretty houses in other areas of the, of the country, and, and, and he wasn't going to leave Detroit. This may be my favorite interview that we've done. 
Uh, uh, it was, it was, it was really, it, no, it was, it was uh, really cool. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Oh, I really did. I did. Thank you. I mean, I, I do feel really lucky to have been a part of that. And, and it was, it was magical. It, and I, I, no matter what, I, I will always love all of them and, and hold that place was so sacred and, and beautiful and painful. And it was, it's, it's just, the best time. It really was. I'm really, really blessed. And I hate the word blessed, but I feel really thankful that I got to participate in and witness that, you know, and I'm, and thank you for having me on. We've been anticipating this one a lot. It was, it's just really cool to get your view. You're very sweet and kind and, and easy to interview. If you spot it, you got it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> And we always let our guests give us a song to play out. You can, it can be a Black Crow song, could be a Frank Zapp, whatever you want it to be. I knew this was coming because I, I listened to the Mark episode you sent me and I was like, hmm, <laughs> what message do I want everybody to hear from <laughs> me? And I thought about it, like she gives good sunflower, has to. And then I was like, no, title song, because I want them to know the, the gripping pain. <laughs> but I think um, it, it has to be my favorite, Wiser Time. So, or, or Cursed Diamond. I'll leave it. You guys toss it. Heads we'll, or tails. We'll, we'll do both. We want to uh, thank Lila Slopeman for coming on. This was, a, this was an absolute joy. The yes. door is always open to you if you ever want to come back on again. And to play us out, here's Curse Diamond and Wiser Time. Stay tall, everybody.
I'm a mermaid. I lose myself. I forget myself. Sometimes I fault myself. Yes, I might find myself, but then I Just like 